Well, welcome to uh, part four of our series, The Devil Wears. And I, I hope that um, over the last three weeks, you've been able to see that the Genesis story, or the story that we, that we look at for like how we got here, I, I hope you've been able to see that that story is just as much about who God is as how we got here. And, and sometimes we tend to look at Genesis um, and, and we look at it like a textbook and we just kind of go, oh, this is how God did it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and da, 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 da. We go down through that. But remember, we talked the very first week about how God told the story of the beginning, but he didn't write it at the beginning. The story of Genesis comes much later, thousands of years later, after he rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so there's all kinds of stuff that he needs to teach these people about who he is and not just about how we got here. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we jump into chapter four today, because there's a lot of stuff to cover. And, and we need to know as we go in, as we read the story of Cain, we need to know that this is not just about how all this happened but it's about who God is. So let's look at Genesis chapter four, the first two verses. Um, by the way, I'll, I'll share it with you in just a minute. The text today we're gonna to be looking at is um, from the NIV. It's just because I think it's a little easier to understand. There were some words and some phrases in the um, uh, English Standard Version, which I typically use, that just didn't, they were just, it's just hard to understand. And let me, I'll just, okay. I'm just going to take a minute out and tell you this. Um, th there are people who believe that certain translations of the Bible are like, the, like, like God loves these translations and he doesn't love these translations. Okay. Um, so, so sometimes that is, let's just take, for example, the King James Version. You all know the King James Version. It's the one with the these and the thous and the whatever. Okay. So there are people who think that that's the one that, that somehow God picked and said this is the one that is accurate and these aren't accurate. Here's kind of how I, I look at it. In most cases, the translations that we have today, there's been a whole lot of scholarly work that has gone into um, taking the original language and then presenting it in a way that we can understand. Um, and, and so I want you... I want you to read scripture in a way uh, and in a translation that's easy for you to understand, because then as we talk about things and concepts that are more difficult, if you already kind of have handle on what scripture says, it's going to make it easier. If you're reading a translation that you can't really understand, that doesn't really make sense to you, it's going to be that much more difficult for you to handle the concept. We start talking about the Hebrew word and what that means and what that means. Put it all that together. Okay. This is my two cents. I'll get off the box now and just tell you. Uh, so we're using the NIV today, not because it's the best, not because it's the work, but just because it's a little easier to understand some of the things we're going to be talking about. So, uh, and, and the reason why is verse one. This is why we have kids uh, in the other part of the building. Adam made love to his wife. And she became pregnant. I hope I'm not opening a Christmas present here for anybody. You, you understand this. Okay. Um, Adam made love to his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel cut flocks. Cain worked the soil. And so the, the question is, how are we supposed to read Eve's statement? 
How do we understand this thing that Eve has just said? With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Because I'm pretty sure that even all the way back in the beginning, Adam had a pretty vital part that he played in that process. And so Eve seems to kind of like diss Adam. And she's like, look, buddy, you did this to me. And so I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, with the help of God, I brought, not the help of you, Adam, but with the help of God, I, I brought forth a man. Now, it, it, there's some things going on here that we need to look at. And this is why I chose uh, the, the NIV. Because if you read this same verse in um, the English Standard Version, it says, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. Or in the New Living Translation, it says, with the help of the Lord, I have produced a man. Um, um, I got him with the help of the Lord in the um, contemporary English version. But according to um, Rabbi David Foreman and Marty Solomon, they say there really is only one way to interpret the Hebrew word that it, that is interpreted um, in all of these different phrases. Like, uh, I have brought forth, or I have gotten, or I have produced. And there's really only one way to um, translate that word, uh, and it's the Hebrew word kana. And um, it's, and I, again, I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I probably didn't pronounce that right. Um, but the translation, or the closest translation to that Hebrew word is the word acquired. So what Eve is really saying is, with the help of, of God, with the help of the Lord, I have acquired a, a man, a male, or a son. So what, when you think about this idea, this process, what, what is she saying? Is she really kind of cutting Adam out of this? Or is she saying, um, th th okay, remember, this is the first child ever born in the history of the world. Like, this has never happened before. So all of a sudden it happens, and it hurt, right? And, and so, she, like, this is all new stuff for her. And so she says, with the help of God... I have, I have acquired, I, I've been able to have this child. And, and I think if we go back to what we talked about um, in the last couple chapters, uh, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, uh, remember we talked about the consequences for the eating the, from the tree that they shouldn't have eaten from. Uh, the consequence for that is that she would have uh, more pain in childbirth. And we talked about how childbirth for Eve was very similar to um, working the soil for Adam. They were both the ways that Adam and Eve connected with God in his creative power. And so I think Eve is saying, um, this, I have birthed this child. I have created something. Just like God created everything, I've gotten to experience a little bit of that and create something. And so with the help of God, I've acquired this child that I could not, this could not happen without him. And so I think she's acknowledging the part that God plays in this creative process and saying, okay, this is a big deal. God, I couldn't have done this without you. I, I kind of think that's the, the way. So we can read it negatively as she's cutting Adam out, but I don't think that's what she's really saying. And I don't think that's what she's saying because of what she names her son. She names Cain, Cain, because the word Cain means acquired. 
She named her child acquired. So if you're pregnant, consider it. It's a biblical name. Now, look, <laughs> when we name children, we either name children because um, we heard this name somewhere and we liked it or we came up with it or whatever. Or we name them the biblical way and they all start with the same letter. That was a joke. Because <laughs> my children all start with the same letter. Um, like God wants it to be. Uh, so um, so we, don't, we don't get this because we just go, we just go, oh, I like this name. And so I'm going to name my child this. That's not the way it happens in Eastern culture and, and certainly not the way it happened with, with Adam and Eve or with the ancient um, Hebrew people. They named their children um, on purpose, intentionally. And, and, and their names ended up becoming, either for, for good or for evil, in a positive or a negative way, their names ended up having something huge to do with who they were as a person. And so she names the very first human child ever born on earth, she names him acquired. With God's help, I've acquired a son. And it's odd, but it's important. Um, and, and it's important, but we're going to talk about it in more in just a minute. Um, it's important in part because she has another son, right? The, the verse tells us um, she also gave birth to this kid named Abel. But he's not going to be around in the story very long, so we're not going to tell you why she named him Abel or what his name means. Do you, do you get that? So it's like she gave birth to Cain, and this is why she named him Cain. It's like, oh, this great thing. And oh, yeah, there's Abel over there. And don't worry, you don't need to know much about him. He's not going to last very long. I think it's one or two more verses, and then his part is over. Um, we are told, because again, it's pertinent to the story, that, that Abel... Um, Tends sheep, so he's a shepherd. But Cain, like his father before him, was a farmer. He worked the ground. He helped his dad provide for the family. So let's jump to verse 3. In the course of time, Cain, this guy whose name means acquired, he brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And so we have another question here. Who told Cain to bring an offering? Do we know from the text? No. There's nobody has said, uh, hey, I want an offering. I'm expecting you to give me something. Um, and, and so there's, there's no, like why, we have to ask, why is he bringing an offering? Nobody told him to do this. Like God has not asked for one. There have been no requirements about what an offering should be or what it shouldn't be. And we have no idea why Cain is bringing this offering, we only know that he is. And that's the important part of the story. Cain is bringing an offering. Now, remember, the story is given to Israel and Egypt after they have spent, um, after Israel has spent 250 years in slavery. They've been treated like beasts, and they have gotten very, very familiar with the gods of Egypt, the false gods, the idols of, of Egypt. And, and how they functioned in the world. And what do you do if you worship an idol? You bring them an offering. And so the people who are reading this, who are hearing Moses tell this story for the very first time, they are very, very interested in this 
Because this is a concept they understand. Oh, you have a God that you worship and that you think provides these things for you? You have to bring him an offering. So we're, very, we're setting the stage very um, beginning here. And so Cain is bringing an offering and all of the people would go, oh yeah, I totally, I totally get that. But remember, Cain's name means acquired and Cain is a farmer. He works the ground. He plants the seed. Now Cain knows that for the seed to sprout and grow and produce the harvest for him, that the sun needs to shine on that seed and on the soil. But does Cain have anything to do with when the sun shines and when it doesn't? He shines. He does not. Cain, Cain cannot affect the shining of the sun at all. And the other thing is that um, he knows that water needs to appear, that the ground needs to get wet once in a while to germinate that seed. But again, even if there's a drought, Cain has no way of making it water so that that seed grows. So Cain takes the seed and he plants it in the ground and he knows that the sun needs to shine and he knows that the water needs to come in order to turn that seed into something that he can use, but he is not directly responsible for any of that. And so we have this connection between um, verse one with Eve's statement, with the help of the Lord, I have acquired, I've gotten this thing that I could not get without his help. And now we have Cain who knows that without God, he would have no offering to bring at all. Like he has to have God. God makes the sun shine and he makes the ground wet and, and Cain needs that if he wants to have a harvest. On the one hand, this would make you keenly aware that all the gifts that you have, everything that you have gotten comes from God. You have acquired it with the help of God. God made the sunshine, God made the rainfall, God made the seed to sprout and the head to come and the harvest to come. God did all of that. You had a very small part to play in it. What happens though, if you start thinking that all of the stuff that you have acquired with the help of God is no longer good enough as an offering for God. Like you know that God is directly responsible for everything that you have, but he is not happy with your offering. What do you do then? Like you absolutely need God on your side. You absolutely need God to look on you with favor and go, okay, Cain has planted the seed. I'm going to make the sunshine. I'm going to bring water up. We're going to make this a good harvest um, for Cain. But if Cain doesn't do what God wants him to, and this is a huge question that is just kind of hanging out over this story. And, and we don't really understand it because we don't function in that world. But every Egyptian and every Israelite who are listening to this story for the very first time are absolutely on the edge of their seat going, yes, what happens when God, who provides everything that you have, is no longer happy with, with you? And so the question that I think is the big question of this story is this, what will God do if I disappoint him? If God isn't happy 
with your offering, all of a sudden you're afraid that God might not be happy with you either. If God doesn't like my offering, God probably doesn't like me. And if God doesn't like me, then God might stop the sun from shining and he might stop the rain from falling. And if I don't appease him with my offering, he's not going to pay any attention to me. And so when fear enters the picture, we start to wonder if God doesn't love my, off love my offering, does he love me? Can God separate these two things? If I don't bring the best offering to God, will he withhold the best from me? And, and if God doesn't love me, if God doesn't want to bless me because of my offering, well, then how do I earn the love and affection and attention of God if I don't bring him the right offering? This was the question for every single person who's reading the story that day. It's a huge question because it's the exact same question that every Israelite and every Egyptian was asking. Really, every other nation of people at the time were wrestling with this. Like this very question is the reason that child sacrifice was even a thing. Because in the, in the process, what would happen? You would have this God for Egypt in in particular, really every nation, you would have this God and, and they said, okay, this God is the God of the sun. So if you need the sun to shine, you need to make an offering to that God. And if he likes your offering, the sun will shine. And this God over here, this is the God that controls the rain. So if you need it to rain at the right time, you got to make your offering to that God. And then if he's pleased or happy with your offering, then he'll make it rain. And if you want to have a child, you got to give to this God, who's the God of fertility. And if you get a good offering to that God, then they'll bless you and they'll give you the thing that you want and you might have a child. This was the way they functioned. As they had all, they're called pantheists. They had all these different gods and each God kind of controlled different things and they would fight with each other and they'd argue. And so the only way for you to know if that particular God was happy with your offering was if you got the thing that you wanted. I want a child. And so I come to this God and I make this offering. And if, and if she gets pregnant, then the offering was accepted and that God must be happy with me. But what happens if you don't get the child? Now all of a sudden you have a, a, another question. Okay, number one, um, was that particular God unhappy with my offering? Like maybe I didn't bring enough. So the next thing I could work even harder, I could try to get more stuff and then present it to that God and maybe that God would love me and, and give me a child. Or maybe you begin to think, maybe that God isn't powerful enough to give me the child that I want. So I'm going to go to this God over here and I'm going to make an offering to this God and maybe this God will give me what I, I want. But if I do that, then I run the risk of making this God angry with me and maybe he'll curse me while that one's trying to bless me. So I'm going to have to make an offering to that God and I'm going to have to make an offering to this God. And I've got to make all of these offerings. I've got to keep all of these gods happy because I don't want to be cursed. I want to be, I want to be blessed. This was the system that they lived under. And so that's why child sacrifice came, because this thing, this child is, you're supposed to love them. And so if I give the thing that I love the most to this God, then maybe he'll pay attention to me. Maybe it will appease him. Maybe then they'll give me the thing that I, that I need or that I want. The Israelites and the Egyptians had been living under this very process for centuries. 
And so they, they knew this God of the, the Hebrews, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They kind of knew him. And after the plagues in, in Egypt, after the display that God put on there, they knew that this God was more powerful than any other God on the, on the planet. But they didn't know what he wanted. They didn't know what he wanted from them. And they didn't know what he would do if they disappointed him. They know he's powerful, but they don't know how to approach him at this point. And I think oftentimes we read this scripture and because we know all of that rest of that information, we forget that this was all absolutely brand new for them. And they had no frame of reference for what was going on. And that leads us right in to verse four, because Cain isn't the only son of Eve and Adam. Abel also brought an offering. We don't know why, but he did. And we know that Abel's offering was fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Cain and Abel both bring these offerings to God. God has not asked for them. We have no parameters for what they're supposed to bring or they're not supposed to bring. All we know is that they've brought these offerings. And we know that Cain has brought an offering from the ground. Um, and so I have heard preachers um, say, and probably I have said in the past, well, um, didn't God just curse the ground in chapter three? And now Cain is bringing him an offering from the ground. And so maybe that's the problem. Maybe God is unhappy with Cain's offering because he's bringing an offering from something that was cursed. Uh, and then we go, okay, Abel brought this offering and, and it was these um, fat portions. It was, the, it was the firstborn fat portions. And so we think, well, this must be a, a better offering. But the only reason we think Abel's offering was better is because we know what happens a few hundred years after this. When the Israelites are bringing sheep to be slaughtered and you had to bring a perfect lamb. Like we know the rest of the story. That's why we think God is happy with Abel's offering. But in this moment, in history, nobody knows. The sacrificial thing, that has not been instituted yet. They have no idea what God expects from these offerings. All we know is that they bring offerings and they are different. And, and, and God, well, he's kind of picking favorites right now. And it's an odd thing for God to do. Um, now, it's an odd thing for us to think that God would do that. It is not an odd thing for the Israelites and the Egyptians who absolutely believed that all the gods that they worshipped picked favorites. They had to. Because this guy over here, they go, well, that guy's doing the wrong thing. Look, if you're a Christian, you have thought this before. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've thought this before. How come my neighbor lives a terrible life and he's just a jerk to everybody? But he has a good job and he's got a boat and he's got a camper and he's got all these all these cool toys and all this stuff. And he can do whatever he wants. And here, God, I'm trying to live my life and do the best things and, and, and be nice and I give and I attend and I serve and I don't have all that stuff. People absolutely believe that God picked favorites. And, and again, we're really given no indication in the text why God likes Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. But I think that's the point because it doesn't matter to the story.
Because the issue is not about the offering that is brought to God. The issue is, who is this God and how do we appease him and get his attention? That's what the people wanted to know. We just followed this God who we know is the most powerful God in all of the known world. We followed him out of Egypt where we had homes and we had fields and we had all the things that we needed. And now we're stuck out in the desert. We can't even get a good drink of water. And what does he want from us? What does he expect from us? How do we appease him? How do we get his attention? Because that's what they're going to all try to do. I know this God is powerful. If I give him the right sacrifice, he has the potential to give me lots and lots of stuff. When Cain realizes that God likes Abel's sacrifice, his offering better, we're told that Cain gets angry and his, and his face falls, like he's dejected. He's Charlie Brown walking away and the music is playing in the background. He, he doesn't understand and he doesn't know what to do about it, which everybody there would have, would have gotten. Yeah, I completely understand where, where Cain's from. Like he's just he's mad, he's disheartened, and he's like, what do I do now? This God who provides everything that I have, everything that I need to live is unhappy with me. What do I do? How do I get his attention? Everything I have, everything I own, I owe to God and he's unhappy with my offering. How do I get back his favor? What do I need to do? What kind of offering do I need? To, like I thought I brought a good offering, but maybe it needs to be gooder. Maybe, maybe I need to find something else to give to this God. And, and if he's unhappy with my offering, what disaster is he going to bring on me because I didn't bring the right thing? So is he going to hold up the reins? Is he going to keep the sun from shining? Like this was a keystone moment in Cain's life and all of Israel is there paying very close attention to what's going on because they didn't know what was going to happen next. And so here's what happens next in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? And I absolutely love that God comes to Cain in this moment. Because first remember, this offering by the brothers does not appear to be at God's request. Like God has not asked for them to bring this offering. They have been given no guidelines as to what to bring, which means there can be little expectation on the part of God in terms of what they might bring to him. Like he didn't tell them what to bring, so he can't really be angry with what they bring, right? I mean, that's the way a father does it. You don't demand your child do something for you and give them no parameters and no uh, instruction at all. And then when they do the best that they can, they come to you with whatever they've, whatever they've created. You go, no, it's not good enough. Go away and try again. That's not how a good parent functions. Like only a cruel ruler would demand an offering with no instruction and then punish the person who didn't bring the right offering. No, that's not what I wanted. Maybe you've worked at a job and had a boss or manager like that who said, go do this job and you go and do it and you come back and they go, well, that's not what I expected. That's not what I wanted. Do it again. Well, if you tell me what you want, I can do it and I'll bring it to you. And I know you figure it out and then I'm going to tell you I don't, I don't like it. Like we get, that we, makes us mad too, right? In those moments. So, um, 
So God is not that kind of God. And they're trying to figure out who this God is. Second, I thought that God was angry with humanity and that he banished them and, and kicked them out of the garden, that he had to separate himself from them because they were sinful and evil existed now. And he said, I can't be with that. I can't be around that anymore. I can't be around that sin. Only what's going on in this story? God has come to Cain and he's talking with Cain just like he talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. We're like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit the story that I was told. Because I thought God was mad and he kicked them out of the garden and he said, that's it, I'm never going to talk to you again. I've got to wait until Jesus comes to then have this relationship with you. But here we see Cain outside of the garden and he's having a conversation with God. So while humanity has moved away from the garden, God hasn't moved away from humanity. He's still there. This is the same story that happens in in um, chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree they're not supposed to. And what does God do? He shows up at the end of the day, just like he did the day before. And he said, where are you? I thought we had an appointment. Like they, things had changed for Adam and Eve, but they hadn't changed for God. I also love in, in, in this little verse we seem to pass over. I love that God comes to Cain before he does something that he's going to regret. Did you catch that? God knows what Cain is thinking. Like this is just beginning to creep into Cain's mind. What do I do now to earn back the favor of God that Abel has kind of stolen from me? And so God comes to him before he does something he'll regret. Um, and, and again, people didn't know. These people didn't know what God expected. They didn't know what offerings to bring. They didn't know how he would respond to them if they disappointed him. And so it's all very important stuff for them. And so here we see again that God isn't waiting for us to screw up so that he can punish us. What he really wants is for us to succeed. So God isn't the kind of God who says, go do it. And when you're done, if I don't like it, I'm going to punish you. He's the God that says, hey, let me help you. Let's make sure that you get it, you get it right. The last thing I want to point out is the way that God approaches Cain, who is angry. And he's dejected because he feels like he messed up. Like God must not love him. And, and like he's got to get the attention and the approval of God um, once again. Cain, uh, God comes to Cain and God's question is, Cain, you've got no reason. You've got no reason to be angry or sad. Why are you? So we're told in the verse before this that, that they bring this offering. God likes Abel's offerings better than Cain's. And Cain is angry. And he's dejected, he's sad, he doesn't know what to do. He's disheartened because of all this. And, and God says, you've got no reason to be angry or sad. Why are you? And so we see that God isn't angry with Cain. Cain is angry with Cain. Do you see that in the story? God's not going, Cain, I'm so angry with you that you didn't bring me the right, the right offering. But Cain absolutely is there going, um, God, I'm really sorry. I'm angry with myself because I didn't bring the right thing. I didn't do it good enough. Maybe I didn't bring it like, like Abel did. Cain is angry because now he's afraid that God isn't going to provide for him 
like you did before. God's not going to provide. God's not going to love me. God's not going to do the things I need him to do because I didn't bring the right offering. But notice who God is not talking to because he's talking to Cain. God is not talking to the winner of the offering battle. He's talking to the loser. And this is something that the people of, of Egypt and Israel, they have no context for. This made absolutely no sense to them. Wait a minute. Abel brought the best offering to God. God should be paying attention to Abel. God should be going to Abel and patting him on the back and going, Abel, man, good job. You brought the right thing. Way to go. But he is not with Abel. He's with the loser. He's with the guy who didn't bring the right offering. And, and here's what God says to Cain in this moment, verse 7. Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So let me um, say that a, a little bit differently. Here's what I think God is saying to Cain. Uh, Cain, if you do what is right, like that's awesome. I'm really happy with you. Way to go. Here's a pat on the back, an attaboy. You did the right thing. I'm really happy for you. But Cain, look, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to hate you and I'm going to banish you and I'm going to curse you and I'm never going to give you any good thing that you ever want again in the whole entirety of your life. Cain, if you do the wrong thing, I'm done with you. But that's not what it says, right? I mean, that's what we think. If I sin, if I mess up, if I do that again, God is going to reach this point where he says, all right, that's it, that's enough, I'm done with you. You're never going to get another blessing from me in the rest of your life. Instead, God comes to Cain. And he says, Cain, if you don't do what is right, you're on the verge of letting sin take over, of letting evil take over in your life. And it's desire. The desire of evil and sin is to control you, to have you, to make you its slave. But you must rule over that desire. I think what God is saying to Cain is this. Cain, you are not a beast. You don't have to give in when you have these feelings that bubble up in, inside of you. You don't have to act like a beast in this moment. So I didn't love your offering. Like, who cares? Big deal. Try again. Do better. That's, that's what God is saying. Cain, it makes absolutely no difference to me that I didn't love your offering this time because I know that you're going to have another opportunity to bring an offering, and that time I think you're going to nail it. It's going to be fine. But it really isn't about the offering that Cain brings. It's about how God responds to the person who doesn't bring a good enough offering because the people had never, ever heard of a God who accepted somebody and loved somebody who didn't bring the right thing. God is saying to Cain, Cain, I'm not the one you have to worry about here. You're not my puppet. You're my partner in this life. It's sin that wants you to feel rejected. And I just want to have a relationship with you. Don't give in to those feelings. God is telling Cain this. I don't love you because of what you offer. I love you because of who you are. And you are not a beast. You're better. 
My guess is that there are at least some of us in the room today um, who have felt like Cain in the past. Like we, we felt like we weren't good enough, that you didn't bring the right offering, that God was unhappy with you <clears throat> for some reason, and you wondered if, if he was going to, to bless you or do the things that you needed in your life, or, or he didn't provide the rent money at the end of the month that you needed. And we're like, well, so God, did I make you angry? Did I do something that you're not happy with? And what do I need to do to make sure that I have what I need next month? Like you, you screwed up and you brought the wrong offering or you said the wrong thing or you let the anger get the best of you again or you snapped or you fell off the wagon and then you tipped the wagon over. And it's like, God, you must hate me now. You must be so angry with me because I said I wasn't gonna do that and then, and then I, I did it. And, and then what happens is we begin to feel afraid and we go, what, what if God doesn't love me anymore because of all of these things that I've done and all this sin that I have committed? What if God doesn't accept me anymore? What if I get to heaven and he goes, you didn't do enough and so I'm gonna reject you away from me. I never knew you. And you go, what if that's me? And we begin to get afraid what if God doesn't accept me? What if God, because he's angry with me, because I haven't done the wrong things or said the right things or brought the right things, what if he stops providing the things that I need? And what if I don't have enough to live on and enough survive? And, and what if my family falls apart because, because I haven't done the right things to make God happy with me so that he gives me the things that I, that I need? I think there's a couple things that, that we need to know. Today, the first one is this: God is not angry with you when you fail. I'm going to say that again because we need to hear. It. God is not angry with you when you fail. Does God like it when you say those things? No, probably not. Does God like it when you do those things? No, probably not. But He is not angry with you when you fail. And the only reason for you to be angry with you is because you're afraid that you might lose out on something. That's the reason we get upset and angry when we do the wrong thing, because we think maybe God isn't gonna bless us. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not gonna get into heaven. We're afraid that we might miss out on something if we don't do everything that God wants us to do. God won't love you or bless you or provide for you if you don't bring the right offering. But that's the way people get attention from the idols made of wood and stone in ancient times. That's the way that they believed. That's what they thought. Instead, God rushed toward Cain, the failure, and not to the guy who came in first. I think that really is one of the keys in this story. That God doesn't go to the winner, he goes and attends to the loser. I think the second thing we need to know today is that God doesn't reject you when you get it wrong. God doesn't reject you when you get it wrong. God is not this God just waiting for you to screw up. He doesn't reject you when you get it wrong. Instead, he wants to reach out to you to help you get it right. 
This is not a relationship in, in, in which we have to earn the affection and the attention of God by giving him the right offering, by saying the right things, by avoiding the, the wrong things. That's not the way this relationship with God works at all. In this relationship, God leads us to do the right thing and he loves us through the wrong thing. And sometimes we get that messed up. What God was trying to help Cain understand and what I think he wanted Israel to understand thousands of years later and now what I think he wants us to understand even thousands of years removed from that is that his love and acceptance of you doesn't change because of what you do. And you gotta hear that today. God's love and his acceptance of you doesn't change because of what you do. Even when you bring the right, the wrong offering, even when you say the wrong thing, even when I swore I wasn't gonna do that again and I did it again. See what happens when we get it wrong, when we do the wrong thing and we bring the wrong offering and we don't trust God in that moment is that we think, okay, next time I'm gonna be sinless. When we sin, we think that the response to that is, I'm never gonna sin again. How's that working out for you? Not good, right? Because what we get in this cycle, but God, I'm, I'm, I know that you don't like this. I'm never going to do it again. I'm going to be better. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to step into this again. I'm not going to say that again. I'm not going to feel that way again. I'm not going to look at that thing again. And then, and then we go for a little while. We're really good. We do really good for a little while. And then, and then we slip and fall and we sin again. And then we're back into this thing. Now God is angry with me and he's not going to give me what I want. God, I'm never going to sin again. Our response to getting it wrong isn't to be sinless because we can't be. Our response when we get it wrong is to be secure in God's continued love for us. It's not to be sinless. It's to go, God, I know that even in my sin, even when I got it wrong, you still love me. Love is a much greater motivator than pain. Our response when we get it wrong is to trust the story even when we think we've totally messed it up. That's why the New Testament says this, God works all things together for good. The good and the bad. The things that we do right, the things that we do wrong, God is able to work all of those things and our response to each one of them is simply to trust that God is writing our story and it's gonna be good but we have to trust the story. And that's the tough part for Adam and Eve and for Cain. Cain didn't trust that story. You know the rest of the story. He didn't trust that. But what we see in the rest of the chapter is that God's love continues even through the curse. Now, I think there's some really cool stuff in the second half of chapter four in Genesis. But I haven't decided whether we're gonna do the rest of chapter four or we're gonna jump to chapter five. So you're just gonna have to come back next week and see 